Welcome to the Self-Publishing School Podcast. This is the podcast to listen to if you're an aspiring writer or an author who wants to be more successful. On this show, you'll learn how to write and launch a book successfully, all from the top authors and people just like you who are doing it at the highest level. I'm your host, Chandler Volt, the founder of Self-Publishing School, the author of the book called Published, and the CEO of selfpublishing.com. For free training on how to publish a book that sells 10,000 copies, go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. Hey, Chandler Bull here, and joining me today is Jenna Moresi. Uh, Jenna uh, is best known as a YouTube star and the author of two, soon to be three books, uh, including her debut, debut novel, Eve, The Awakening, um, and also the Savior series. So she's got uh, the book called uh, Savior's Champion already out. Uh, and Save Your Sister comes out uh, in September. So depending on when you are watching or listening to this, it has either already come out or is about to come out. So that's exciting. Uh, and uh, her self-titled uh, YouTube channel, which is her name. Uh, and uh, so this channel has over 200,000 subscribers uh, offering tips and how-to videos to aspiring writers. Uh, you may have seen, so we did a, an exclusive uh, SPS YouTube channel interview um, with Jenna and Bella, who's on the content team, uh, at Self-Publishing School, um, but she's never been on the Self-Publishing School podcast. So um, if you haven't checked out that video interview, it's really, really good. Um, I'm, 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 I'm watching it and prep for this interview thinking, okay, wow, a lot of the bases have been covered, but we're going to build on that. So if you want a lot of, you know, kind of foundational stuff, definitely start there. Um, but if you're watching this or listening to this YouTube, YouTube channel podcast, we're going to kind of go a little bit more advanced and specifically into three buckets. So we're going to talk about uh, writing fiction, cover some basics there, uh, writing great fiction, uh, not just any fiction, uh, and then marketing. So book marketing as well as YouTube stuff uh, and growing a YouTube channel and kind of using YouTube to market books. Uh, and then lastly, uh, we'll talk about uh, career author stuff. Um, so how do you become a full-time fiction author? Um, how has that evolved? Kind of stuff like that. So really, really long preamble. Uh, Jenna, great to have you here. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. It is a huge honor. So I, I, I want to start off, you know, I, you mentioned this in your conversation with Bella uh, uh, in, in kind of the, the first interview that we did together about quality versus quantity. And I think this is something that a lot of people focus on when it, when it comes to writing fiction. And sure, there's a happy medium of like, okay, you're putting out books regularly, but they don't suck. Like, what, what, you know, what is your kind of mentality or where do you land on that spectrum uh, and, and, and quality versus quantity? And how do you really, I know uh, asking kind of like a spiraling question here, but how do you, what are some habits that you have to write great quality fiction, but also quickly? Um, well, I'm in sort of a unique position because while I do write full-time, I'm also a full-time caregiver. My fiance suffers from CRPS. Um, he has a spinal cord injury. So my time, a lot of people assume that, oh, she writes full-time. That's all she does all day. It's not really the case. So I can't always write as quick as I want to, but looking at a lot of my friends who are in a similar position to me, they usually aim for, when it comes to fiction, at least releasing one book a year. I think if you're writing nonfiction, it's a lot easier to pump out more books than that. Um, I have a friend who writes fiction and nonfiction, and she pumps out at least one fiction book a year, and 
sometimes three, four nonfiction books a year. Um, so I think that's one thing to take into consideration that just because I pump out books a little bit slower, for me, it's about one fiction book every other year. Um, I wouldn't use that necessarily as a rule or guideline because my situation is a little bit different from the norm. Um, for me, focusing on the quality of the story, as you mentioned, really, really matters. Um, one way that I make sure that's focused on is I have a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people read the book before it's out. Um, I have critique partners, which are fellow writers, who, uh, you know, read your writing and critique everything from the story to the grammar, and I have beta readers, which, um, to be, you know, perfectly clear, Beta readers and critique partners are not the same thing. Critique partners are fellow writers. Beta readers are just readers. They don't have to be able to write. They just have to like reading. And um, I will enlist at least 20 beta readers per story. I have them read the book and I collect basically, uh, you know, market data. Um, I look for trends within my betas. I try and have a very diverse mix, men, women, different sexualities, different racial groups, and see what they're saying. I look for trends between um, what scenes they're not liking, what sort of content they are liking, what they're responding to, and I implement the feedback. A lot of writers are very attached to their stories, which are, is a good thing, um, but they'll be like, no, I don't like that feedback. I want to keep yeah. that. And it's like, if enough people are telling you it's messed up, you probably should do something about it. But yeah, I think, I think it's extremely important to have a lot of people read your book before it goes out. And that will, that will help you create a quality story. And it also cut, cut time on you just reading the story over and over again. Mm. Now you've got a bunch of other people reading it. When it's easy to get offended when you have people telling you that your baby is ugly. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it is. Right. <laughs> uh, and you got to make some improvements. So, uh, now, to walk me through this, because I, I mean, I think there's different camps when it comes to beta readers, critique partners, things like that. How do you do that without it taking so long? I mean, well, and, and then also, how do you discern, like, this is good feedback, this is not good feedback? Because I've just seen so many people go off rabbit trails, and it's like a year and a half later, they're, they've got this horrible feedback, and they're just like still trying to implement, they're waiting on beta readers to get feedback back. Like, it can just, it can really elongate the process. So how do you, how do you streamline that? Uh, well, first and foremost, I consider myself an expert multitasker. So when I implement the beta process, for example, I do it in cycles of 10. So I'll recruit 10 people at a time and I send them the content, you know, at the same time. So that's 10 beta review process going on at once. I also make sure I'm doing the beta reviews while I have something else to work on while they're reading. Um, people forget that publishing a book, there are so many different process or uh, parts to it, especially if you're self-publishing. Um, so while they're beta reading, I might be, you know, working on my author platform. I might be filming videos and, and content. I might be um, looking up cover artists. I might be looking for editors. So there's still a lot of work to get done um, while the beta reader process is going. So it's not elongating the publishing yeah. process any more than necessary. As far as good and bad feedback. Um, one thing I look for is if my beta readers have nothing but praise and, you know, oh my gosh, this is the best book I've ever read. I, I mean, we all love a good ego stroke, but uh, this is a rough draft. You know, this hasn't been professionally edited. 
I know it's not perfect. If you have nothing but positive things to say, you know, as much as I would love to believe it's true, you've got to listen to your logical brain and say, nah, this, this beta reader is full of crap. Um, if they have nothing but negative things to say, um, to the point where it's almost like heckling, I've had beta readers uh, laugh at me. Like uh, I used to do beta reviews over the phone and I would be sitting there while the person's laughing at me. This is so stupid. <laughs> you know, if they're going like that, that's not criticism. That's just heckling. Uh, maybe, maybe don't work with people like that. Um, I've had people um, tell me things like, oh, this isn't how I thought the story was going to go. I thought it was going to be about this. And then they send me an essay of what they were expecting the story to be about. If that's the case, it, you know, that's totally their prerogative, but they can write that book. That's not what this book is about. Right. Um, but ultimately, I think I know common sense ain't common, but I think it comes down to common sense. Um, if someone says something to you, gives you feedback that you know it just doesn't really sit right, it just it sounds funny, it doesn't really make sense, um, it doesn't make sense for the story, you have to be able to discern maybe this isn't the best feedback to listen to. Um, the last thing I wanted to touch on is I have the rule of three, which is where something I've noticed by doing so many beta reviews, um, once three people at a minimum, make the same comment, it usually becomes a trend. So if one person doesn't like a scene out of 10, it's probably not a big deal. If three people don't like it, I, I notice that it typically becomes a trend and then a fourth person doesn't like it in a fifth. So for me, once three people give the same piece of negative criticism, I immediately tackle the issue because I'm like, this is, this is gonna be a problem. Mm, that's great. That's great feedback and what is it? It's uh... Uh, one's a data point, two's a something, and three's a trend or, or, or something like that. That's great. Uh, how, how do you, um, do, do you set expectations on timeline? Like if it's, if you, if you have a beta reader, is it like, hey, I want this back within X time, and then that's just super clearly communicated? Or how do you manage that piece of like, if someone falls off, or it's taking forever for them to read it and get feedback? Um, I I'm a creative person, but I also have a business background and I like numbers. Um, I'm a weirdo who really enjoys spreadsheets. So I literally spreadsheet uh, where my beta readers are um, in terms of progress so I can see when someone's falling behind. Um, I have a friend who has a similar beta reader process to mine and she usually expects them to read uh, 10,000 words a week, um, which sounds slow, but you gotta keep in mind that the beta reader process is a lot more in depth than just reading a book for fun because your book is messy and has mistakes and they gotta kind of wade through all of that. Um, so she usually expects about 10,000 words a week and I kind of uh, model my timeline off of that. I usually give uh, my beta readers chapter expectations. So I'll say, I want you to read at least five chapters a week please and thank you. And if they start falling behind that, I will, you know, tap them on the shoulder and be like, hey, how's, how's that review coming? And usually if they get to a point where they're like two weeks behind schedule and they haven't notified me, um, I just recruit someone else and I'm like, okay, on to the, onto the next. Got it. That's great. Uh, and, and how do you get beta readers? And especially if, if someone's like, okay, I'm not Jenna. Uh, you know, I can't, I just can't create a video or send an email or any of those things like any grassroots beta mm -hmm. reader recruiting tips. 
I actually, if you were me, I would not recommend recruiting beta readers like on your YouTube channel or something, because mm -hmm. you're just going to get a lot of people who just are like, I want to talk to Jenna or right. I want to read this book for free. So I, I recommend the grassroots method. Um, first and foremost, obviously social media. There are so many different writing and reading hashtags. Just stalk them a little bit and post, hey, I'm looking for beta readers. Um, I. I got, when I first started uh, my first novel and I had a much smaller audience, I got a lot of beta readers just on my personal Facebook page. Because again, you're just looking for people who like to read. Lots of people like to read. So I would say, hey, I'm writing a book. I need people to read it and let me know if it sucks. Here's what it's about. Is anyone interested? Um, obviously, there are reading and writing groups you can join online. Uh, I have a Patreon writing group uh, called Cyborg Central. It's exclusive to my patrons. And there is an entire channel devoted to beta readers. So every single day there oh, are cool. people going and saying, I need five beta readers. This is what my story is about. So I definitely recommend joining reading or writing groups if you can. Um, and like I had mentioned that beta readers don't have to be writers, uh, but they can be. So if you have any writer friends, just ask them, hey, do you want to do you want to beta cool. read my book? Please and thank you. Awesome. And, and what's the perks to the beta reader um, for going through this process? Is there any perks, benefits, compensation, um, anything like that? You can pay beta readers. That's usually, uh, there people who offer uh, critiques or sometimes editors, sometimes they'll have beta reader services. That's usually if you're so hard up that you can't find anyone who will do it for free. Usually right. the perks of being a beta reader is they get to read uh, something that they in theory would enjoy. And if they don't enjoy it, they can leave at any time. And that's feedback in itself. Hey, this person, <laughs> hated the book so much that they said, I'm not reading it anymore, goodbye. Um, so that's part of the reason that I always emphasize, like be kind and understanding to your betas because they are volunteering right. to do it. They're doing it for free and they're doing it because they like to read. So right. be nice. <laughs> and, and I look at that similar to the way I look at launch team members because I'm, I'm a big fan of you know, creating a launch team and that's what we teach a lot um, is, is creating a launch team. But I, I, I think people underestimate uh, the willingness to help and, you know, it's like the deepest human desires to be heard and to be understood. Uh, mm -hmm. And in the process of giving feedback on your work, they're being heard. And, the, and, 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 and probably in a lot of cases, the people who love to, to, to read fiction, a lot of times love to write fiction or aspire to maybe one day write fiction. So mm -hmm. it's almost them dipping their toes into the water of, oh, I'm, I'm getting a behind the scenes of this process. And I think so many people who are going through this they, they look at that as like, oh my gosh, I couldn't ask people to do that. <laughs> like, that's crazy. Uh, but people actually want to help. And, and in fact, and I think in a lot of cases, they're eager to help. Yeah. You, most, yeah of the most of the beta readers I've had have told me that they were super excited to do the process because they are hoping to write a book in the future and they have no idea how the beta reader process works. And this is sort of giving them hands-on experience to know how to do it in the future. So a lot of people who have beta read for me, I have gone on to see them recruiting beta readers and emulating my process. So it's really, really cool. That's great. That's awesome. Hey, a couple more questions specific to content creation, writing, mm -hmm. great fiction, things like that. I'm curious on this because I feel like you're, you're very unique in the sense that you're creating YouTube videos and you're writing fiction. So mm -hmm. like, how do you manage that uh, and reserve creative space and energy for both video creation and writing? And like, how, how do you balance that? Well, in terms of 
reserving the creative energy. For me, that's all a fiction. That's what I'm passionate about. For me, the videos are more just be me being myself. And it's me, you know, expressing my personality. Um, writing my scripts for my videos is totally different than writing my books. Um, but what I usually do, because uh, video prep work does take a long time and I don't want it to cut into my writing time, I basically, um, it takes, I would say, about a, a full week to produce all my content for a month. So I look at my schedule as if one week is going to be devoted to YouTube. It doesn't necessarily mean one week in full. It might mean three days here and four days there. Um, but one week is going to YouTube and the rest of it is going to my writing. Um, and like I said, I'm the queen of multitasking. So I will, you know, script my videos. I will edit them. And I usually... Um, batch film. So I will film usually three to four videos in a day. I just change my shirt so it looks different, change my lipstick, and then um, ship it off to my assistant to trim the content. And once that's all done, it's like, oh, okay, now I get to write, <laughs> you know, endlessly for the next three weeks until it starts all over again. That's great. And I have a similar process for <laughs> recording a bunch of videos, except I don't change my lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> Keep the same, keep it the same for all the videos. Uh, what's, what's the difference between your process? You, you alluded to it a little bit, but the difference between the creation process of writing videos uh, and writing fiction. It sounds like there's scripts and batching involved mm -hmm. on uh, the, the, the video side of things. What's the difference? Well, with fiction, it's all intuitive. It's all, you know, creativity. It's, I, I always recommend that people write what they're passionate about, write what they want to read. So for me, it's just like all a big joyful experience. Like, oh, I get to write romance and bloody fight scenes and all this good stuff. Um, I outline, you know, I, I tap away at the keyboard, edit as I go. It's just, oh, so much fun. With videos, it's more structured. I have sort of a system where I have every video has an intro, 10 points, and a conclusion. Very seldomly does it differ from that. So I will pick a topic. I have a spreadsheet of, right now I think it's about 120 different topics to choose from, um, and I keep adding to it as I think of more topics I could cover. Um, I diversify my topics in a month. I will try to uh, pick at least one trope topic. Those are my most popular ones. Um, at least one topic about the business side of writing or, or marketing. Um, at least two writing craft topics. So then I, and then the rest of the content for the month is a free for all and I can do whatever I want. So I'll go through my list. I will pick the topic that I am most interested in talking about at the time. I come up with my 10 points and then I fill them in. And it's very, I imagine, weird to watch me scripting my videos because I try to make them sound the way that I speak. So while I'm scripting, I'm saying everything out loud to make sure it sounds naturally to how I talk. And sometimes my fiance will look over at me and just be like, what is going on? This is so strange. He's used to it now, but at first he was like, this is very, very weird, especially because there's lots of cussing in my videos. So it's just me like F-bombing slowly while I'm typing. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's one process is very uh, creative and the other process is a lot more like business-minded and logical. <laughs> That's great. When do you think your trope videos are most popular? Uh, people love a good rant. People love, uh, especially my worst tropes where I talk about, you know, the worst tropes in fiction. People love a good rant. 
my thing, and I, I totally get it. My thing is that I don't want to become a rant channel. So I try to make sure it's not all worst trope videos constantly, because at the end of the day, I do this because I love writing. Um, so there are also tropes that I really, really love. And there are facets about writing that I'm very passionate about. But people love a good rant. Also, uh, my humor is very uh, salacious and blunt. And um, so it, it catches a lot of people off guard, I think. Um, I'm very forward. And also, so the trope videos are a good opportunity to kind of commiserate because we've all seen these tropes. We can all relate to them. We, I mean, most people are very annoyed by love triangles. Most people are, cannot stand insta romance. There are some that everyone can relate to. And I think people enjoy kind of commiserating like, yes, she's finally saying it. Someone's saying the thing that I agree with. So that makes sense. And, and I think I know why, but why not, why not become a rant channel? Like, it, it seems like you're very intentional about like, all right, I'm going to sprinkle those in and those mm -hmm. will be high views, high engagement, high mm -hmm. building subscriber base and all that. But that's not going to, that's going to be the gravy, not the main dish, as we'd say in the South. It's kind of like if you think about um, uh, trashy reality TV, um, if you're watching a show that you love and there are some spicy, trashy moments here and there, you still really love that show. Whereas trashy reality TV is the guilty pleasure that people don't want to admit that they enjoy. Trashy reality TV is never going to be nominated for any awards. It's kind of like that. And then the fact that I'm calling it trashy reality TV and not just reality TV, it, 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 it's that idea. Um, when you become a rant channel, people may enjoy you, you may get a ton of views, but first of all, it, it's going to plateau at some point. At some point, people are gonna get sick of the complaining and they're going to see you as a negative force because that's kind of what you are if all you're bringing is negativity. And mm -hmm. second, it's, it, it just, it's going to change your reputation in the community, um, you know, and reputation in an in industry you know, kind of matters. And, uh, you know, especially if you are a, a writer on, you know, YouTube, and all you do is rant, you are now going to be seen as a drama channel, people might take might not take your writing as seriously. It's it's just not a good look overall. And it's going to present to you to the public in a very negative light, even if you're getting those views, you know, right. left and right. Yeah, 100%. It's That's great. So uh, kind of kind of final question on writing as we switch gears into marketing. You alluded to this earlier. So beta reader is literally laughing at you on the phone or, or on the meeting or whatever. Uh, but then also I think there's this element of, we, we call it FUD or it's not, it's not our term. It's a, it's a common term, but fear, uncertainty, a doubt or imposter syndrome. And I think especially if you're someone who teaches this, there's a high pressure of like, oh man, my book's got to be good. It's got to do well. Like I'm sure that comes into your thoughts as, as you're doing all this. So what, what's your advice for people who are uh, either, I guess, two part question, like overcoming that blunt negative feedback. It's like, whether it's your first one star review or it's your beta readers, like this sucks. It's the worst thing I've ever read. But then also that imposter syndrome, like that, that voice in your head, that's like, this has to be good. How do you overcome that? Um, I think the first thing I always tell people who are in this situation is that, you know, if you get a one star review, if people, you know, your beta say that the book sucks, just keep in mind that no one in this entire world is perfect. Everyone is flawed. Uh, everyone has faults. So why are you expected to be perfect? Why are you expecting yourself to be perfect when no one else in the world is perfect? Even your favorite books, they are not perfect. So try to give yourself 
you know, some slack and the grace that you give to other people. Um, remember that you recruited beta readers for the sole purpose of them telling you what sucks. So even if it hurts to hear it, they're doing their job. And the entire point is so that when you release the book, the suckage is gone or at least kept to a minimum. Another thing I like to mention is that one star reviews are inevitable. You could write, you know, the next great American novel. It could be perfect and someone is going to hate it. And sometimes it's for the dumbest reasons. Like uh, when I see a vampire novel and the person's got fangs on the cover and the book is titled, this is a vampire book. And then someone gives, goes one star because I don't like vampires. And it's like, why did you pick up the book? So just keep in mind that it's not always a reflection of you. Sometimes it's a reflection of other people's stupidity. Um, remember that you're, you don't have to be perfect. You are allowed to make mistakes. And remember that everyone experiences imposter syndrome, no matter which stage of the game they're in. I mean, I've been doing this for years. It's my full-time job. I'm a bestseller now. And I still have moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? It's, it's completely normal and human. That's great. Great, great advice. Let, let's switch gears to marketing. So I'm curious, you know, obviously uh, book number three coming out um, this fall. What, what have kind of been the biggest needle movers for you in terms of what works best for marketing your books? Well, I'm fortunate at this point because I have a very large audience. It's why I'm constantly saying on my channel, you really, really need to focus on your author platform, especially if you're writing fiction. Um, because once you build that audience, once you've got eyes on you, it makes it easier to market your book and it also makes it cheaper. I spend way less on marketing now with over 200,000 subscribers than I did with my first book at 7,000 subscribers um, because you have a built-in audience. I can hop onto YouTube and say, my book is available for pre-order and I will get hundreds of pre-orders. Whereas if you have a small audience, that's not really going to happen. So number one point of advice is to build an author platform, offer some kind of service or benefit to people and um, make it consistent. Uh, understand it's not going to happen overnight, you know, give it time and let it grow. Um, another thing that I do is that I swear by and has given me great results is I all of my books before they're released they're available for pre-order and um, it, it's a method that not a lot of self-published authors do because pre-orders are a hard sell you're asking people to part with their money now for a product they're not going to get for three to six months um, so you kind of have to incentivize people who aren't necessarily early adopters. Um, I incentivize using pre-sale giveaways. Um, this means that if you pre-order the book, you could be entered into a giveaway to receive prizes, signed uh, merch, signed books by me, signed books by other writers. Um, not only does this incentivize people to pre-order the book, but it also um, is fun. It creates a party around your pre-sale. It creates excitement around your pre-sale, and um, it which in turn brings eyes to your pre-sale, which is exactly what you want. You want to uh, keep the momentum up going forward. So that is the last piece of advice I want to touch on is hype. You know, a lot of people are scared to market their book. They're scared to be like, my book's coming out. It's amazing. Uh, you should definitely buy it. They're scared to say those things because they think it sounds arrogant. Um, there is a difference between excitement and arrogance. Uh, be excited about your book. Show the world that you're excited. Excitement is contagious and other people will get excited for you and they'll get excited for the product. 
Mm, that's great. What you said, you spend less money now than you did when you had 7,000 subscribers. What type of things were you spending money on to market your books when you were at that point, that 7,000 subscriber mark, or even prior to that? And how has your marketing changed kind of as your platform's grown? Um, it was, it's writing, there's kind of two different marketing houses and one is pay to play which is where you buy advertisement on facebook instagram uh, amazon all those platforms um or you advertise like i do through my platform which is essentially the free option and you're speaking directly to your audience um so when i had a much smaller platform i had facebook ads and amazon ads and i was doing the pay to play now um I, I'm, I'm thinking, I, don't, I can't remember the last time I bought an ad. I think it might have been since the first book, um, but I'm selling 10 times more books than I did then. Mm. But that's because of the growth of the platform. And now it's, I have a much direct or much more direct access to my audience than I had mm. before. So it sounds like early on, you focused on building the platform as a whole, which mm -hmm. is, you know, you're paying in sweat equity and effort and consistent mm -hmm. effort over time and all that while also simultaneously spending money on things like Amazon ads, maybe BookBub ads or promotion mm -hmm. sites or, or things like that. Like anything that you saw work well from a pay to play perspective and, and why not do that as heavily now, even, even after you have kind of a much bigger platform? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because with this book, now that my platform is larger and I'm making more income, um, I've decided to experiment with both sides in part because, you know, obviously I want book sales, but also because uh, I thought it would make a good video topic. So I recently applied for a BookBub ad and I'm going to test out and see uh, those results versus, uh, you know, more, I guess, grassroots marketing um, for a future video. So spoiler there. Um, so I am interested in doing them both and seeing how they perform against one another. I will say that, uh, with my first book when I did advertising, I didn't, uh, I'm trying to think, it, it's not that it didn't work, it did, but it wasn't as consistent or um, it didn't translate um, exactly how I wanted it to. Like, for example, advertising on certain platforms worked better than others. Um, I did Facebook ads and those translated into pretty much no sales. But looking back, it makes sense because um, I write for an audience that's around my age, or I write for sort of the uh, college age to, you know, 40 years old uh, range. And Facebook ads are much more popular among people who are a bit older. Um, so that makes sense why that didn't work out. But um, basically, when I switched over to just marketing via my platform and hitting my audience directly um, for the Savior's Champion, it just worked out better. So I was focused on that uh, more so than using the ads. But again, for this uh, particular book, I'm going to do both and see and see how it goes. Hey, Chandler Bolt here. I hope you're loving this episode so far. It's time to go from inspiration to implementation. All right, so if you've learned something, we want to help you implement what you've learned with your book. So what I want you to do right now is go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a publishing consultation with one of the experts on my team. We'll talk about your goals for your book, your dreams, your challenges, your next steps, and we'll start putting together a plan. All right, so go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a call with the team. Let's see how we can help with your book. It's time to implement.
Those are great tips. I can't wait to see the difference in, in what your takeaways are from trying those two different uh, approaches. Um, mm -hmm. I want to ask a couple more quick uh, marketing questions and then kind of transition to more platform building specific to YouTube. So uh, I, I was curious on this. So, uh, you know, looking at as of time of recording this interview, I'm looking, you know, Eve the Awakening, 400 reviews, Savior Champion, 510 reviews, um, your third book coming out soon. You got tons of reviews on your books. How do you do it? Um, I, it's funny because <laughs> this is going to sound so like hair flip arrogant. It, it's for You me, don't it's, think there's that many? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not that. It's just that um, it, for me, it's easy because I have such a large audience um, that uh, people will message me saying that they really loved the book. And I'll be like, oh my gosh, thank you. If you could leave a review, I'd really appreciate it. And they usually do. I know I'm very aware of the fact that that is not the norm for most people. So I'm, I'm not saying, oh my gosh, guys, it's easy. Easy. You don't have to do anything. It, 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 it isn't that way for most people. I just have a very public platform. My face is on people's computers. And so it's easier for them to remember to leave me a review. Um, one thing that I recommend for everyone, even though even, I do it myself, even though it is easier for me to get reviews, try to recruit ARC reviewers, people who get a free copy of your book ahead of time and in return, they're going to leave you a review. I actually just started recruiting ARC reviewers uh, a couple weeks ago for my upcoming book, The Savior Sister. And I got, you know, hundreds of people applied and you go through them. You don't have to send the book to all of them, especially if you got hundreds of people, that's hundreds of books that you're handing out. But what I like to do is try to enlist at least uh, 50 to 100 ARC reviewers because those that's the number on Amazon that will help increase your exposure. Once you have 50 to 100 reviews on Amazon, it will help put your book in their newsletter, put it on their website as you other people purchase this, you know, things like that. So that's the number that I like to aim for. Just understand that you're going to have to give the book away for free um, because yeah. they got to get something in return. Yeah, cool. That makes sense. And uh, kind of two-part question for those who've never heard of ARC reviewers, um, what does it mean and also how do you find them? Um, ARC reviewers are just, it just stands for advanced reader copy. It means that they are getting a copy of the book before it comes out. Um, you can find them pretty much the same way that you find beta readers and critique partners. You can find them in writing and reading groups. You can find them in library groups. You can find them on social media. You can find them among your friends or fellow writers. Also, there are entire websites devoted to getting ARC reviewers. Um, there are mailing lists and newsletters devoted to getting ARC reviewers. The most popular website I can think of is NetGalley. Um, and you can put your book on NetGalley and people, ARC reviewers will download it in return for um, giving an honest review. The thing to keep in mind though is NetGalley is expensive. It ain't cheap. I think, I don't want to misquote, but it's a few hundred dollars to have your book available on NetGalley. If you cannot afford that, then you're just going to have to do the grassroots method, look on social media. I like to create a sign-up form and I post it on social media and let people trickle in for a while. Um, yeah. You can also you can also hit up uh, influencers directly, like bookstagrammers, booktubers. You can email them and say, hey, would you be interested in an arc of my book in return for an honest review? So there's lots yeah. of different ways. That's great. And, and sometimes it's even if, even if you can't afford them, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to you sometimes. Cause it's like, you know, it's like with, with marketing your books, I feel like it's similar to business in a sense that money can make you lazy mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and you just try throwing money at the problem. And then you end up with a lot of money out of your pocket and not a lot of results. Cause you, 
refuse to get in the trenches uh, right. and, and do a lot of the grassroots stuff that you're right. talking about. I, I want to switch gears to, to author uh, a platform building okay. uh, and talk a little, a little bit about this. So, I mean, at the beginning of this interview, you, you stress the importance of building an author platform. Like, hey, this is one of the biggest things that I tell people, build a platform, it makes everything easier. Uh, why YouTube? Like, do you think that's the best platform for a lot of people or a mechanism to build that platform? What are the pros and cons? Uh, and what are your thoughts there? It's definitely not for everyone. I, I cannot stress that enough. You really have to be a certain kind of person <laughs> to uh, make YouTube work for you. Um, the reason I chose YouTube is a, a little complicated. Um, originally, I had a blog like every other author in the entire world, um, and it was doing okay. I had 200 followers, which was okay considering I had never published a book yet, um, but it plateaued. And the thing was that I really hate blogging. I like writing fiction. I don't like writing uh, about my life or my experience. It's not fun for me. So it plateaued. I only had the 200 followers and I was doing something I hated. And I was like, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a better option. For years, people had told me, you should be on YouTube. You're funny. You know, you, you remind me of this YouTuber and this YouTuber. And I was kind of like, ha, never in a million years because um, I'm an introvert. I don't want my face on the internet. I don't, I don't want to be on YouTube. Um, but I got to a point in my life where I was like, you know what? I'm not enjoying blogging. I really want to make this my career. I'm just going to risk it for the biscuit and try out YouTube. I had very low expectations. My goal was a hundred subscribers. And once I hit a hundred, I was like, I'm going to be really daring and do a thousand subscribers as my goal. It's like so crazy. And now I'm at over 200,000 and this is in part how I make money and it's my author platform. So it was, it was completely on a whim. I had no expectations for it. Um, it just worked out. Uh, one thing I would say, one of the benefits of doing YouTube is like I said, Every writer in the entire world has a blog. That's the most popular option. And it's going to be really, really hard if you go that route to stand out. That doesn't mean that it's impossible and you shouldn't do a blog, but that's the most popular option and it's hard to stand out. You, the YouTube uh, writing community is pretty small in comparison. It's very small in comparison. So it's a lot easier to stand out. So if you have the stomach for it, there are definite cons to being on YouTube, but if you have the stomach for it and you have the personality for it, um, it'll be easier for you to stand out in that way. That's great. And I'd love to play to your strengths, right? And mm -hmm. how do you prefer to create content? Do that. Right. <laughs> right. And I think that's so important. I knew you get asked, probably get asked this all the time. How has your channel grown so fast? Uh, any, any tips of, uh, around growing a YouTube channel for people who are attempting to do that? It's funny because it doesn't feel fast to me. <laughs> it, felt, yeah. it felt really, really Same. slow. Yeah. But, but um, uh, the moment that I noticed a difference was when I first started my channel, um, I was trying really hard to be slightly cute, but mostly professional. So um, I, I'm a, you know, a sailor mouth by nature. I'm very forward. I'm very blunt. That's just my personality, but I was trying to tone it down in my videos. Um, if I did swear, I would bleep it. Um, I tried to, you know, look very professional and everything. And my videos were not performing. Um, I mean, it was, it was, pretty dismal. And it got to a point where I was doing that for a few months. And I was like, I'm 
just gonna create a video where I'm myself, I'm gonna, you know, throw F-bombs here and there, and it doesn't matter because no one's watching anyway. So I just dropped the veil and I was myself. And then I got like something like 7,000 subscribers in a couple weeks. And I remember I was at my sister's bachelorette party. We went to uh, Disneyland and I'm in line for like the Toy Story ride. And I, everyone's there fawning over my sister because she's getting married. And I'm looking at my phone like, you guys, you don't understand what's happening. All these subscribers were coming in. No one cared because, you know, my sister's getting married. But I was freaking out. I was like, what happened? All because I sort of dropped the act and I was myself. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should go on YouTube and drop F-bombs here and there. It's not the fact that I curse or that I'm forward that makes my channel, you know, successful. It's just the fact that people appreciate authenticity and they can smell a phony a mile away. So if you are yourself, uh, people can relate to that. People will be drawn to that. And um, th yeah, that, that was the biggest turning point for me is when I stopped trying to be something I'm not. That's great. So being authentic in the content, uh, any X's and O's from a, from a marketing perspective, or, I mean, and this is one thing that I think is super interesting is like, you come from a business, stock trading, finance, <laughs> analytical, uh, and I think it's very easy for people to see that, see your videos and not equate that. And I think you really, like you're strategic, you're intentional about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're analytical. You have spreadsheets. It sounds like for everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like you're, you're very strategic. Even just the cadence. And oh, I'm gonna have a trope video, and then I've got uh, I've got my notes from earlier in the conversation. It's like you've got trope videos. You've got um, writing craft stuff, book marketing, the business of writing. So you've kind of been strategic with the topics that you're, you're covering. Anything else from a like an intentional business mentality of how have you approached this strategically? to build and grow not only subscribers, but also income? Um, one of the easiest things about YouTube is they present all the analytics for you. It is so easy to pay attention to what's working and what's not. And even if you don't go to the analytics page, you can just pull up your videos and see which videos are getting views and which videos are getting dismal views. So that was, it was really easy for me to be strategic with my platform because I could see this type of video is doing really, really well. This type of video, not so much. So I'm going to do less of this and more of this. But if I do this exclusively, I will be, people won't see me as a writing channel anymore. So I'm going to pepper in some of this. It, pay attention to the analytics and data. Um, pay attention to what people want and, you know, steer toward that direction, but in an authentic way. Another thing to keep in mind is that I write adult fiction. I write fiction that is cussy and violent and forward and romantic. So it behooves me to sort of express that on my channel because not only is that being authentic to myself, but it's also being authentic to my books. People watch my channel and don't expect to see like lullabies or like a PG, you know, young adult fiction. They expect to see the F word and things like that because it's authentic to me and my writing. So um, that's another thing that I would say for people who, who decide to go on YouTube or start a platform at all. Um, it's not just about, you know, trying to get a large audience. It's about trying to get the right audience. There are plenty of people who don't feel comfortable with a woman swearing or giving advice or being forward. Um, that's fine. They don't have to watch my channel because they wouldn't like my books anyway, <laughs> because that's reflected in my content. I want to appeal to the kind of people who are going to like my book. 
That's great. And, and being intentional about attracting the types of people that are going to, you know, not just vanity metrics, big mm -hmm. numbers, but people who are going to actually read and buy books, which means that not only are you growing a channel, but you're growing a readership. Right. And it's not like, because I think it's very easy for those two things to become mutually exclusive, right? It's like, oh, I'm working on this YouTube channel and there's some overlap. And mm -hmm. then I have these books and then I try to get these people to buy these books uh, and only a small amount of them care. Right. <laughs> uh, and then you end up boxed into a corner um, versus being intentional about having significant overlap so right. that when those two things grow, both things grow, right? The exactly. As a YouTube channel grows, book uh, purchases grow. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's cool to see your strategic, I mean, I mean, that almost answers some of my question of like, how do you turn book or uh, subscribers and YouTube viewers and mm -hmm. use that to sell more books? So I think there's that alignment. And if you don't do that, nothing else matters. Anything else that you do to, to uh, kind of use that to, to sell books? Well, one thing that I would mention is like a lot of writers who are trying to create a platform, it's recommended to create some kind of service because People, writers will get online and be like, I'm writing a book, buy it. And then they'll be shocked and amazed that no one bought it. It's like, no one's heard of you. This, the social media and your platform is not charity. They don't know who you are. They don't know anything about your books. Why would they just say, here's, take my money, stranger. You have to offer some kind of service, some kind of benefit to people for them to be attracted to you and your platform. And once they've been there for a while and they start caring about you as a person, that's when you drop the book. You're like, hey, by the way, I got a book. This is what it's about. Now they're interested and you have their attention. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention besides just, uh, you know, having your uh, platform overlap in that way. Oh, I just lost it. It was really, really important too. Sorry, give me a second. No, no, it's no worries. So, I mean, are you doing, I noticed you have some things around pre-orders, you have some mm -hmm. things around um, the giveaways and stuff right. like that. Anything else that you've seen work to kind of carry over audience? Um, definitely pre-order and giveaway. I remember the thing. Um, one of the yeah, one of the easiest benefits is that, for example, with YouTube, I make video about writing content and business content and things like that. But I have people right there and engaged. So in every single blog post or you know podcast interview or uh, YouTube video I do, I get to remind people. By the way, my upcoming dark fantasy novel, The Savior Sister, is available for pre-order right now. You have basically free advertising at all times, and every time I release a video, I get book sales. Um, mm. it, it's just a, a constant source of advertising. So it doesn't mean you have to make the whole video about the book, but, you know, mention it there, you know, drop it every once in a while. It's like a little commercial on your content. Cool. That's great. Love that. Hey, a couple final questions. And I want to especially zero in on, uh, yeah, platform growth. Cause I'm, I'm super curious about this, especially on the YouTube platform. What? what would your advice be for us? Uh, so, I mean, you've probably seen some of what we're doing at self-publishing school. And I feel like, you know, we kind of have, there's some intentionality around our YouTube channel. It's grown, I think about this time last year, it's probably 10,000 subscribers. I think we're like 35,000 or something like that. Um, so we've had, you know, pretty decent growth. Um, what, seeing what we're doing, what would be your advice from a, from a YouTube channel growth, platform growth perspective? And be honest and be blunt. <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> I'm going to give the advice that I give yeah. to everyone because it transfers over to everyone. The first thing mm -hmm. is get to the point. I'm not saying you guys don't, but this is the mm -hmm. advice I give everyone. Get to the point. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most irritating things about YouTube specifically is when there are lots of ums, uhs, pauses, uh, things like that. Um, try to create your videos around a certain length. For me, I've noticed what works for me is around 10 to 15 minutes, somewhere in that frame. It'll depend on the channel and the audience. Uh, for example, BeautyTube, their videos can be 20 minutes of just someone putting on makeup and people eat it up. It really depends on the audience. So I would say experiment and pay attention to which videos are performing at what length. Like I said, mine's around 10 to 15 minutes. We have a very similar audience. So that might be the golden ticket for you. Um, get to the point, uh, editing. I cannot stress enough how much, how important video editing is. I know people who will do lots of effects, lots of doodads and, you know, transitions and things like that. That's fine. And effects and overlays can increase watch time. But at the end of the day, the most important editing is going to be your sound quality, your picture quality, and trimming out any unnecessary content because people on YouTube have very short attention spans and they are just there to get that content fast. So make sure your videos have quality editing or else that will be the number one thing that will lose your audience. And of course, like I already mentioned, pay attention to the analytics and metrics, the, the uh, videos that are performing the best keep doing those and see how how the channel grows. Mm. Anything else that you've learned over time from paying attention to the metrics? Like for, for someone who's, because I, I feel like people like you and I take it or take this for granted, you know, it's like our mind works that way, right? You look at right. the numbers, the numbers talk to you. Mm -hmm. um, but for the person who's like, hey, numbers don't talk to me. Like what, 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 are, what are some insights that you're, how do you figure out what the numbers are telling you? Um, well, this is something that I learned that I was genuinely surprised by. And looking back, it makes total sense, but it's not how my brain works. Uh, the videos that I enjoy making the most and I think are the most valuable are business advice because most writers are naturally creative and they are not business people. And I'm fortunate because I have a background in business. So I'm able to kind of marry both of those things. Um, so I find that my business advice videos are the most valuable to my audience. However, of the videos that I do currently, they are my lowest performing. And I was always like, why? This is so, so important. Right? Yeah. yeah, I'm like, this is so, uh, the metrics, the analytics, all this stuff, like these videos that I'm making about, you know, how to hire an editor. Why are they not performing? The videos that do perform the best are the ones that I would consider very basic writing advice, like how to write an inciting incident. What is a chapter? How to write a plot twist? These are all the most basic fundamentals of writing. They perform the best. And that surprised me because in my mind, you can find that information anywhere. There's tons of information about it. Um, whereas there's not a lot of information about the business side of things. I make this point to say that just because you assume something is the case and something is obvious doesn't mean it actually mm, is the case. Yeah. Maybe the reason there's so much basic writing advice available is because lots of people are looking for it. So yes. just something to consider when you're looking at the analytics. If it comes out to be something that you are not expecting, try and figure out why that's the case. Yes. Uh, and 
I think that's, you know, as, as someone who's a marketer, or if you don't want to call yourself a marketer, then it's like as someone who is marketing, mm-hmm. or anyone listening to this is like, your opinions do not matter. <laughs> uh, viewers, customers, readers, whatever you want to call it, they will tell you. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite quotes is, uh, in God we trust, all others bring data. <laughs> Which is just like, <laughs> the data will talk. In my opinion, as a marketer, does not matter. It's a starting mm-hmm. point. Exactly. Uh, and, and it's because it's the only starting point that I have. Uh, and then I can mm-hmm. work from that, get feedback, let the, let the data talk. And I would imagine a lot of cases with what you're talking about with those popular videos, it's, a, it's almost like an overlap of SEO and mm-hmm. topical information that people are looking for, like mm-hmm. how to write a plot twist, very SEO friendly or, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, character development or stuff like that. And so it's like kind of this overlap of quality content that's also SEO friendly that once you have a big boost that then it's like gets consistent traffic over time. I think it also plays into the fact, and I don't mean to say this to sound negative, but there are a lot more people starting to write their first book than there Mm -hmm. are people who have finished a book and are publishing it. Um, Not everyone who attempts to write a book ends up finishing it and getting it ready for publication. So there are going to be millions of people who are deciding, I'm going to try a book for the first time. What's a plot twist? Whereas maybe there's only thousands of people who are like, I have finished my book and it is edited and how do I publish it? So, you know, the numbers thin as you go further down uh, the writing process. Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, So, hey, kind of final couple questions here. Knowing what you know now, third book's coming out. You've created a ton of videos, uh, but actually we won't even talk about that. Uh, More so just (laughs) all the fiction writing. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, And book three, what would be your advice for Jenna from how many ever years ago, pre book one? So all of the other Jennas, uh, watching, listening to this uh, mm-hmm. on that journey to that f- first fiction book. What's your advice on what you know now? Uh, write what you want to read and don't be embarrassed. Uh, the reason I say that is because my whole life, ever since I was a kid, um, my favorite type of books and my favorite type of movies and media in general is half adventure and sword fighting and monsters and blood and guts and half sucking face romance the guy gets the girl and i was always embarrassed to pursue that second half because people make fun of romance and people you know they're like oh romance is cheesy um and so when i was starting my first book or you know starting my writing journey in general i would feature romance in my work but i was embarrassed and i would make it a subplot and be like eh, i don't know um and then once I implemented beta readers and things like that, the content I got praised for the most was the character relationships, uh, the the romantic elements, uh, and, and also the fight, the action and fighting and blood, you know. And it just ha- so happens to be the two uh, parts of reading and movies that I am pas- the most passionate about and that I enjoy the most. Um, and once I started getting that feedback, I lost that embarrassment. So now um, the series I'm working on is uh, dark fantasy romance. So the plot is literally half sword fighting and bloodshed and half, you know, romance and half falling in love. And now I'm doing what I love to do. And the response has been super amazing and positive. And I think that largely comes down to the fact that now I am writing exactly what I want to write and exactly what I like to read. And I don't really care if people, you know, have a problem with that. They can read something else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Jenna, this has been amazing. Super, super helpful. Uh, and I think talking about a lot of the things that just 
on the YouTube channel, on the podcast, we don't talk about, because we don't talk a lot about fiction. Uh, and so I think this has been really great. Uh, who are the type of people, obviously you got a book coming out, um, who are the type of people um, who should read your book or your books and where can they get it? Um, well, first and foremost, it's an adult book. So if you are a, a little kid and you know, you need earmuffs, you, <laughs> this, this probably won't be the book for you. Um, if you like fantasy, obviously, particularly dark, gritty fantasy. Um, if you like strong leading women and you like uh, kind, compassionate leading men. Um, if you like healthy romances in fiction, that is my bread and butter. And of course, like I said, if you like lots of action, if you like monsters, violence, uh, torture, uh, political intrigue, all that stuff, that's, that's what I do. That, that's what I like to write. So The Savior Sister right now is available for pre-order all over the place. And it's available Barnes & Noble, it's available Kobo, it's available obviously on Amazon. So you can pre-order it all over the place. And uh, if you wanna follow me, the most obvious option is youtube.com slash Jenna Moresi. And I'm also all over social media at Jenna Moresi. So you can find me and we have a good time. Cool. Awesome. Jenna, this has been so amazing. Um, check out her book or her books, um, book coming out. Uh, buy it, read it. Um, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I had a great time. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jenna. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of the Self-Publishing School Podcast. I know there's so many places that you could be spending your time. There's other podcasts that you could be listening to, YouTube channels that you could be watching. Uh, so thank you so much. It means the world. Now, I want you to do three things right now if you found this episode. All right, number one, I don't know if you know this, but we've got a YouTube channel. It's a companion channel to this podcast. All the video versions of the episode are on the YouTube channel. So number one, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Number two, if you're listening to this podcast wherever, whether this is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, number two, I want you to subscribe to this podcast right now so you don't miss a future episode. Uh, and then number three, this is probably the most important, uh, leave a review on the podcast, all right? Reviews are super important and help the podcast get discovered by other people. Uh, so number three, leave a review on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'll see you in the next episode. If you're on the fence about scheduling a publishing consultation call with my team, maybe you're not quite ready uh, for that, I've got some free training that I think will be really helpful for you. All right, all you have to do is go to register to sign up. Go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. When you do, you're also going to get a free digital copy of my new book, Published. And on that training, you're going to learn the next step, so how to implement with your book. So how to write, how to publish, how to launch successfully. So go to register right now at selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. I'll see you there.